Oh, we're all here. I wonder where the pavilion is. Not like the bishop to be late. Yeah. <laughs> Cynthia, I ended up staying home too. So. <laughs> huh. They must be having technical difficulties. Can anybody hear me? Because I'm having also problems. I can hear you. Can you see me or not? Uh, You're speaking, is that no. Cynthia? Yes, this is Christine. Oh, Christine? Yeah. So can you see me or not? not I can't no. see you. Just have the, the blue yes. shield up, but I can we hear you. We saw you a moment ago, but. Yeah, I don't know. I seem to be having some problems too, but as long as you can hear me, then I can hear. I'll... Yeah, <laughs> I can't We're all waiting. Can, we can hear you. Yeah. Thanks, Kanji. But we're not. We're not. We're not synced up with the uh, with the bishop, right? No. Right. Yeah. There's some. There's some technical difficulties apparently. Okay. So. Hopefully, we'll get synced up. <laughs> Just trying to re catch up on the on the additional readings he gave. Right, me too. <laughs> Quite interested about the story of Balak and Balaam, which I have to say I did not really know before. So. Yeah, I like the little donkey in that story. 
<laughs> the poor little donkey got beaten <laughs> three times. Oh. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. can you all hear me online yes i had trouble john wasn't here today and i can't get the big blue tv working but so we'll just have to do it like this and um we can just use the usual amplification for that so anyway you're all good you can okay. see here all right yes um i don't know if it let's see if it's uh I do not know the answer to that question, but it's one I cannot pursue today. <laughs> so, all right, let's pray. Blessed Lord has caused all holy scriptures written for our learning. Grant me in such wise, hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace, never hold fast, the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, let's see. Can't hear your speakers turned off. No, it's not. Okay, let's see here. Oh, it is turned off. Can you hear me now? You all hear me now? Yes. Okay. Yes. All righty. Well, we are now um, in Revelation. I sent, hope you got the notes. I, yes. I sent them out a little bit late. I'll, I'll try to get some things out a little more in advance uh, for, the, for these things. But the these letters that Jesus is that are, are Jesus is um, telling John uh, to to send to the angel of the church are deeply connected to imagery from the Old Testament, which carries the the sort of symbolic meaning of the thing, and so. Um, 
that's why we need to, to kind of look. You know, sometimes there's not just one passage, look at this, here it is, but it's more an overarching um, theme or, or phenomenon of the Old Testament that's being hearkened to. So um, anyway, so let's, let's, let's just jump in and look at our, our letter now to the... Um, and what's interesting as we as we move forward these letters, we we've said there are seven letters. Symbolically, they they represent the whole church because seven biblically is a number of completion. That's why there are seven days of creation, and that's why John continually traffics in sevens. Um, and that's why on the seventh day he rested because. That's the day of rest. Well, six day rested, then he entered into there. So, so the se seven is a day of completion. Um, so, anyway, so so let's jump in and look at um, what we have now. We yesterday, what was the main complaint last week about? What was Jesus' message to the church in Ephesus last week? Who remembers anything about that? That they left their first love. That they left their first love. What were they really good at? Just about everything else. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they were good in their theology and they were good in their doctrine, uh, but they, um, but they, but they, but so they, the, the idea here, the idea where there is a sort of a, a practice of religion that forget that 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 keeps to the, maybe the doctrine or even the form, but forgets the underlying essence of it. We should be clear, as we said last week, that that doesn't mean that either doctrine or, or proper form is unimportant. It means they can't stand alone without, without the, the, the investment of the heart and love. Huh? We are in chapter two, and we will be picking up at um, verse eight. So now we go to a, a church in Smyrna, which has a little bit of a different uh, um, challenge and setting. So we'll just, let's just jump in. And to the angel of the, of the church in Smyrna, right? Now remember that we, we, um, we've talked about the angel being an intermediary and, and perhaps most likely from a heavenly perspective may being the, the, the bishop overseeing the church and the, and the connection between the spiritual authority and the temporal authority is a little bit blurred, but, but we've got a message coming from the, the, the ascended and glorified Christ to John now to be sent to the messenger of the church, then, you know, to, to be communicated to the church. So there's, there's a lineage here, and this lineage is important. It's, it's where our whole, again, we talked about this, but it's good to reiterate, it's where our whole doctrine of, of what we call apostolic succession comes from. It's not just so much that, you know, this person touched that person, but that you want to know where the message comes from. So, like when we say the Nicene Creed, 
which is the authoritative summary of the faith. It's, it comes from the apostles. In this history of the church, everybody agreed on it. And so that's a, that becomes authoritative and it comes from that source, you know, from Jesus, apostles to the church, the Holy Spirit leads church into common understanding versus somebody who comes from somewhere else. So this lineage of message is important, it's authoritative for that reason. And when it doesn't come with that sense of authority, that that's where message doesn't need to be listened to. Um, so right, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Now, he's already called himself the first and the last a few times here in um, in Revelation. The beginning and the ending, which is a similar, but here there's a, um, a a specific reference to Isaiah. Chapter 44. Excuse me. The first one is chapter 41. There's a few in Isaiah there. Um, And it says here in verse four, who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and I, and with the last, I am he. And then in Isaiah 44, six, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Beside me, there is no God. And then lastly, in 48.12, listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, my called. I am the first, I am also the last. Indeed, my hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand is stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. Now, the importance of this in, our, in Revelation is, of course, if somebody is... He, he, when, when, when the, um, the risen Christ says to John to tell the angel, um, this thing says the first and the last, is coming with all the authority of those Isaiah passages. This is God speaking. So it's not just a poetic thing. It has a rootedness. And this, this, is, this is a message from God to the church. And what's significant about that, even this lineage, risen Christ, John, angel, church, and actually in the beginning um, the, the, of Revelation, it was almost uh, God the Father um, to the Son. Remember in chapter 1, the Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. Now he is God, but as the intermediary is also the one who reveals. So this is the, the, this communicates the doctrine that the son of God reveals to us the truth of the father. So the father has let the son know fully who he is. 
And then the son now is communicating that now to John, who's giving it to the angel. And the, point, the, the, the importance of that is therefore, it's not just like a piece of advice. Hey, you know, this would be good if you did this. It's, this is a message that you have to listen to and obey. Um, and in the same way, the gospel message in general has this weight to it, because if it comes from God the Father through the revelation of Jesus Christ, uh, who, who, who gives a message to anybody who says, who proclaims the word in a place, then this is, people have to respond to it. And that's, I'm, I'm talking about this a little bit on Sunday, but um, in the gospel on Sunday, it's from John, which we just studied, where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, which means he's the God, it's the same thing, he's the God who spoke from the burning bush. So if that God says something, you don't get to say, nah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not down for that. And a lot, a lot of things like in our time, the view of God is like, well, you have, you know, you have God for you, you know, and then, uh, but, and, and I have my own, but, and that's the, the you know, that's the, the sort of tenor of our times. But I mean, people can choose not to believe, but the point is your subjective working out of what you believe based on what seems and feels good to you doesn't have the same authority as the father revealed through the son to chosen people and proclaimed. And the other thing about this is that the revealed word of God it, to, to, it, 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 um, to hear it, then we're, 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 um, we're culpable for our response. God has spoken we say no, he's spoken to us. And you, you kind of get this in the ministry of Paul in Acts, which we studied. You know, Paul, Paul doesn't spend a lot of time trying to convince the unconvincible. He comes and proclaims, God has sent me to tell you Jesus is Lord. If you all heard, great, now I'm moving on. Because I've proclaimed it here. I've borne witness. There's testimony has been made. It's incumbent upon the people there then to respond to it. Um, so anyway, that's all caught up and I'm the first and the last. Um, we have a front row seat for you. <laughs> Come up higher. So this is the knows everyone and so in verse 9 he says well in, in the first and the last i should say that revelation now moves that isaiah passage forward because he says who was dead and came to life so this communicates something that's embedded in john's gospel but now in it, it later but it's it's um John 1 says, the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. So this, uh, this first and last from the Old Testament has become man, has died and rose. So this is how the New Testament expands the horizon of the Old Covenant. And this is why it's not simply 
it's a new or renewed covenant because the stipulations are different now. God has fulfilled his own covenant, and now he is moving it forward in a way that fulfills the old and is related to the old, but moves beyond the old. In the same way, last week, talked about the seven candlesticks that in the old menorah were all connected to the post. Well, now there are seven distinct candlesticks because geographically they're dispersed in the churches. So the symbolism is connected, but it gets expanded here. We don't have in Isaiah God saying, I was dead and come came to life. But now we have it because of because of the, of the life of Jesus. So he says in verse nine, I know your works, tribulation and poverty. Now, this is significant because um, after saying I'm in the first and the last who knows everything, then for him to say, I know you. I've seen your church. I'm aware of what's going on there. And that's pretty significant. Um, it's, it's, it's part, I think, of the um, process of conversion for all of us when the idea of a sovereign God who, who, who dies for everybody becomes an experience that, oh, he sees me and has come into my life in a way that I now experience it. It's kind of like uh, Hagar when she was running from Sarah in the Old Testament and God appeared to her. It's like, oh, I'm just a runaway slave and God sees me. So this, this is um, something that has applications, but, but God, God sees and knows what's going on. And sometimes we don't know that he knows. We feel like oh, I'm just alone in this or I'm abandoned. And I think we have to believe, we have to trust and take it by faith. But I think God does give consolations and indications just to let you know, hey. So I know your works. Let's look at this, your works. That would be like good works. I know what you're doing in the spirit for my name. Um, your tribulation, and this is a big, this is a uh, um, word that means trial, affliction, what you're going through. And specifically in the Bible, it's not, it's not just any old suffering, although any old suffering is tribulation, is specifically connected to the trial of the church the body of Christ sharing in the cross by its tribulation. And the New Testament is very clear that the church is called to do that, that, that as Jesus suffered, died and rose, so the church will share in the sufferings. Um, and this is one of the things we were talking about at the beginning with the um, our broadside against what we call dispensationalism is that one of the doctrines of the dispensationalism and the rapture theology is that the church would somehow be raptured and would not suffer tribulation, would escape it. And 
it just that um, that's so contrary to the whole framework of the New Testament, in which eleven of the twelve apostles were martyred, and the other one, John, is in exile a lot. And it's it also shows that that, that doctrine is kind of why it's such a Western doctrine. It completely ignores the Christians around the world are suffering terribly now. Um, Bishop, can I ask a question though? Um, the the uh, rapture, you know, um, theory. They say that they'll be spared from the tribulation. So they distinguish what goes on in Revelation as the tribulation, rather than tribulation in general, right? Right. You know what? Um, hold on just a second, because I think I've not turned the speakers on. Just hold that thought, Connie. Oh, we can hear it. <laughs> yeah, they're on the screen. I'm okay. We can repeat it. Isn't it this thing? All right. Okay. Yeah, I can hear it. We can hear it. All right. So, so say that again, Connie. Well, my understanding of uh, the rapture um, theory is that it, the the church will escape the tribulation as described in Revelation. That when all this stuff, you know, according to them, when all this stuff is happening. The church is going to be raptured out and, you know, don't be left behind to go through this. But in, in general, my understanding was it doesn't teach that you escape suffering or, or trials, but it's the big trial that the church will be raptured out of. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, although there is, though it says that, there still is a very Western implication, not, not that, 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 that is born of the fact that we don't suffer a lot of persecution. But but I, but what I want to say about that, the Great Tribulation, because Connie raises a point, um, that the, the, the contention that, that I, am, I am saying is that this whole tribulation that resulted from the end of the Old Covenant the destruction of the old covenant temple and the dawn of the new covenant age is the great tribulation. It was the great tribulation that, that marked the end of the old, the beginning of the new. And it was catastrophic. I, it, one ought to understand if you haven't read much Josephus, it's a little bit dry and most of the copies are very small print. He has a book called The War of the Jews, but you can read what the Romans did when they invaded Jerusalem, 
He estimates that a million were killed. My Hebrew professor said there weren't a million people living there, but it was it was the Romans came and 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 reduced Jerusalem to nothing. And the tribulation for the church was they suffered but escaped that and continued on. The old covenant people were judged for their rejection. The new covenant. And, and so that's the contention here is that that's a faulty, the idea that there's some, the great tribulation at the end, this is the great tribulation. And to the extent that um, our sufferings participate in the trials of the gospel um, and suffering in Christ, we, we might want to um, highlight this. This is a good thing to to dwell on for a second that um, because you could say, I mean, all kinds of people are suffering now. You don't have to be a believer in the Ukraine to have your house bombed or it just, it just, but the uniquely Christian aspect of tribulation is, but maybe it's, it's some different aspects of it. One is that there's opposition because you belong to Christ. Then there's the tribulation results from temptation, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And this is the, the most uniquely Christian, is that as we strive in Christ to uh, be faithful and obedient, we have temptations to not do that. And that's tribulation. That's Jesus in the wilderness and also in the garden, a tribulation. I don't want to do this but nevertheless, thy will. So continuing on through that tribulation. Um, and then there, there, there is just the, the general understanding of, of holding on to faith in the midst of things that are really hard to explain. So, but the real trial of faith is holding on to faith. It always is related to how the people of God grow in and hold on to faith in the midst of these things general suffering in the world is not the tribulation of the, of the church because that's just the normal lot of humanity apart from God is to suffer and die. Those are the natural pains of death. What characterizes tribulation pains in the New Testament is they're recast as birth pangs because they are the prelude to life. If you're struggling to hold on to faith against temptation, it means there's a life in you that is growing and you're, you want it to come forth. If, if you don't have any of that life and you just are giving into temptation anyway, that's not tribulation. That's just fallenness and misery of the world. It's sad and pray for it, but it's not. That's how the tribulation of the church is different because it, it's marked by how it relates to the progress of faith, not just general. No matter what we face, but the fact that we keep the faith, we struggle with it, all of what's around us pulls away from faith, that is the tribulation of Yes, uh, Jack, to, for those online didn't hear, Jack, Christians, whatever um, we're facing, 
to hold on to faith through the, the temptations of life is our tribulation. And it's why, I mean, we talk about this, but it's why the biggest thing that undermines faith in our time is, is, is narrative rather than any particular secular thing. It's the idea that life is about being happy in the world. If that's the end point of life, then all God can do is help that. But the sense of the Christian life as, as tribulation only makes sense when we understand that the goal of life is growth in Christ um, towards the telos of resurrection, that we have a life that's growing towards an end. And then we look at the life circumstances in terms of how they're affecting the central goal of life, which is which is the life within us. And then we understand why, from a Christian perspective, for example, wealth and ease and comfort is equally a temptation, perhaps a greater one. Um, <clears throat> like Israel going to the promised land, you know, they, they, they depended upon God because they had to in the wilderness, <clears throat> but then they got into the promised land and they built, you know, built houses, planted vineyards, prospered. And as, as God criticized them, you, you say to yourself, my own arm and the strength of my hand has gotten me this wealth. And that's kind of what happens. We forget God. That's to fall into temptation, even though so many, so, so often the ideal of life in the world Health, healthy, prosperous, trouble-free is actually exactly where the evil one wants certain people. And so this is why we always have, it, again, there's a whole discussion of, of, of the faithful use of wealth. We're not going to get into that here. It doesn't mean, but it, it simply, it's a neutral thing as, as regards the gospel that can be a temptation. And this is why... This is the only rationale for Lent uh, of, of not doing things. I remember somebody telling me, you know, about, about fasting, that this person was not really a practicing believer that said, why would you give up something that makes you happy? <laughs> um, so you do it because it can, you can make you captive to it. And, and the thing, what the relationship we want with life is 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 a a sacramental one that is that the things of life are are good as gifts of creation to us from god they can only be enjoyed as gifts by receiving them as gifts and offering them back to god in thanksgiving and once they're offered in thanksgiving we're free but Paradoxically, we have to enjoy them with some detachment. And everything we have to do runs the risk of pulling us away. And that includes, as I highlight in Lent, having to watch news, having to go on the Internet and engage in the, in the current fight. That's a distracting thing because it, 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 it doesn't, the, the truth in the gospel perspective, though in, in whatever fight you're in, um, there may be one side that you agree with more than the other. Neither of them is going to bring about the kingdom of God. And to get caught up in that is to get distracted from the fact of the real thing. So. Okay. So tribulation. 
and poverty, but you are rich. So it's, it, it seems here he means literally a poor church. It's not a church composed of a lot of wealthy people. And that was true of the early church by and large. Um, as Christianity became legal and popular, it attracted more, it be, as it became socially acceptable, it, 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 it attracted more people that way. But, um, and, and this idea of poverty, again, um, it's not an ideal that, that poverty isn't of itself a good thing any more than the idea that wealth is in and of itself a bad thing. But Jesus said, he said in Luke's gospel, blessed are you poor for years, years is the kingdom of heaven. When we, because of our relative lack of the world's things, are required to trust God more, a blessing results from it. And that's, that's the idea. So, but you're rich. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, I, I sent a passage out because we were studying John's gospel. Do you remember what Jesus said in that debate with the Jewish leadership in John 8? Yeah, that, that their father was actually the devil himself. Yeah, you, you, they said, we have, Abraham's our father. We never, and, and you said, you're of your father, the devil. So I just want to connect the thoughts here because the, the, the point is, and this, this highlights, again, it, it is something that we have to, you know, move our minds a little bit to get our arms around. But if I, if the one who was the first and the last has come to you and says, believe, and you say, no, I won't, you, you've all of a sudden removed yourself from the religion that is following that, and, and, and you're in the only other alternative, the one who refused from the beginning to surrender to the will of God. So um, the other thing about, about this, uh, uh, you know, there, there's, it's interesting because it's in the midst of paganism in all these towns have pagan temples, which the Jewish synagogue would have seen himself, no, we're monotheistic, we don't worship idols. But it does give an indication that even religion can be a way of denying Christ. And that gets back to letter to the church in Ephesus. You can have all these things be just right, but you can leave your first love, you cannot you cannot embrace the reality of Christ. And St. Paul kind of gets in the, the definition of a Jew. We won't digress to it here in Romans, where he talks about what it means to, to be a Jew who believes, who trusts. And what means that the real Jew is the, is the son of Abraham who believes as Abraham believed. Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, believed God and was counted him for righteousness. So he says, not just being a physical descendant, but being a descendant of faith. Jesus is the primary descendant who believes God and trusts faithfully. And we become in that lineage, Abraham to Jesus, a faith when we believe also. 
and become inheritors of the, of the promises of the covenant God has made and adjusted in Christ. Verse 10, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now, the idea that the devil does this, um, Revelation is um, talking about the spiritual realities behind the, the earthly ones. And so if there are people in Smyrna, wherever they are, perhaps the Jewish synagogue handing them over to the authorities who, who will, because that there's that conspiracy, put people, put Christians to death, that is... That is rejecting God, and that's that's what that is about. That's the that's the spiritual impetus behind that. And you'd be tested. We notice the testing here. So God is giving the reason for that, and it will um, even result in some martyrdoms. But be faithful, and you get the crown of life. And this highlights the point that we've made um, that um, what's the goal of life? If the goal of life simply is to be happy and successful, well, you get out of persecution any way you can. If the goal of life is to be found faithful to the end, then we have to be faithful through whatever tribulation and testing comes our way. And so he's encouraging him because they'll get something eternal, the crown of life. The the um, the natural conclusion of our current life of faith in the Spirit is to come full flower in a, in a life that is is like a crown. Saint Paul says this also in um, Philippians, I think. Henceforth is later for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will give me on that day. And he says here that the tribulation will be intense, but but of relatively short durations. It'll be a ten-day intense period of, of tribulation. Be faithful through it. No, I think that's good. I think it kind of ties a little bit to that passage in Corinthians which is our epistle for Septuagesima, where St. Paul says, um, don't you know that all who run in a race, everyone runs, but only one receives the prize. They do it for a corruptible crown, we for an incorruptible. He was thinking, because Corinth had these things called the Isthmian Games, it also has that kind of thing. But I think that's a good point, because it's, it's not here just a, a royal crowning, which it has an aspect of it, but here it, it's actually 
ties to the sort of ascetical basis of the Christian life that we're, we're athletes running in a race, trying to hold on through trial and tribulation to this thing that will result in a, a reward. But yeah, so that's very good. Very good. He who has near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, I gave a number of passages out that you can go look at again um, in John. John talks about two resurrections in John 5, incidentally. The hour um, is coming and now is uh, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and live. Then he says, the hour is coming when all who are in the graves will hear the voice of the Son of God and come forth. Those who've done good to the resurrection of judgment, those who've done uh, good to the resurrection of life, and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The point is that um, the framework of Revelation is that the first resurrection is the resurrection takes place through baptism and faith. In Ephesians uh, chapter 2, St. Paul says, um, um, you were once dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but but now Christ has made you alive through faith. So the gift of the Spirit brings us from that death of the world where the, where the struggles are just the normal pains of death into life, and it is the gift of the Spirit of which the water of baptism is the visible sign that rises, that raises us up. So we're already living the first resurrection. And um, when he says here that um, he who overcomes should not be hurt by the second death, the first death is death. So he's just told some of them they're going to die. They're going to, their lives can be taken from them. That's the first death. If the first resurrection is baptism and faith, the second resurrection, the first death is physical death. Um, the second resurrection is the resurrection at the end of time, and the second death is eternal death. That is um, highlighted in Revelation 26. Blessed and holy is he who has, has his part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. Uh, I want to do, we're going to get to the end of it eventually here, probably a couple years from now, but but it talks also about um, it talks about the end of Revelation that um, death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. So the intermediate becomes the final. That's the idea of first and second. Make sense? So testing tries our faith and proves it. 
we have faith, we believe in Jesus, we're, we have tests we face in order to show that it, both to strengthen it and to show that it's real. As it endures through the test, it has the promise that it, 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 it is real and won't be hurt by the second death. That's the idea. All right, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. The sword, um, there is a um, reference in Isaiah to, to the sword uh, of, of my mouth, 49.2. Um, it also um, is interesting because uh, the sword in the Psalms is a sword with which he, he judges the nations. And the interesting aspect of the New Testament is when this sword is here associated with his mouth, the word, the word of God is the means of judgment that divides belief from unbelief. The word is proclaimed and belief is surfaced and unbelief is separated from it by this sword. So that's the idea of, of, um, of the two-edged sword. Well, it goes both ways, yes. It's, uh, yeah. Is that what Jesus means when he said, I haven't come to bring peace but a sword, when he's talking about relationships? Yes. When especially he meant um, in Israel, although it's an ongoing reality, that he didn't come to bring peace, peace to Israel because he came to bring the, the Great Tribulation. <laughs> That, that is going to change things. So Jewish families were utterly torn apart by belief and then the, the shunning that happened when a family member decided to believe and couldn't go to the synagogue, couldn't trade, couldn't, couldn't operate in society. That was a test, do you believe? And this is, you know, it's, it's in our time, it, it, it does get played out in families a little bit. And Jesus said, he who loves husband, wife, son or daughter, father, mother, more than me is not worthy of me. That doesn't mean, you know, we, we go be obnoxious in our families and yeah, well, you don't believe in Jesus and that's covering up our own, you know, hostility by some religious thing. It does mean that if there's a legitimate responsibility to God that conflicts with something to some member of our family, this always must take priority. And that's something in our in our culture, which sometimes tends towards a little bit of an idolatry of the family, even Christian culture sometimes is not always understood so well. Okay. I know your works, verse 13, again, so he knows again, this is the all-knowing he knows, and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, the, where Satan's throne is, Pergamos was a, was a center of a few different pagan cults. There was a serpent cult, I think a Zeus cult, and there was also, it was also in Asia Minor, apparently the center of um, the emperor, cult of emperor worship. So it's, it's there's a lot of stuff uh, going on there uh, of, of, a, of a pagan nature. So this is where Satan's throne is. 
there's a lot of aspects that could mean he's got it means he's got a foothold it's also interesting that this word throne uh, is a really big thing in revelation if you concordance throne it it occurs dozens of times in revelation and not more than a handful in any other writing because it's about the throne of god and here's satan's throne his foothold which is temporal which has certain kinds of power and that's that's kind of the idea of that so satan's throne is the evil one has a, a a real foothold and, and you can get a sense of that in regions i i i mean um <laughs> well it's interesting um i mean i don't I don't have any thus saith the Lord, but I, some areas are just spiritually dry and distant from God. Southern California actually has historically been a more spiritually vibrant area, though it's got a lot of stuff going on. I'm from Northern California originally. It only dawned on me later on in life, Northern California is a much drier spiritual area. I, I don't, I can't quite put my finger on it, but it doesn't have the vibrancy that Southern California has. Maybe it's rooted in the early mission work here was the um, the um, you know the Jesus people movement evangelicalism so you have you have a deep rootedness both of, of of the Roman Catholic Church and you've got a lot of and and so it's been more of a live issue and it's just somewhere like this is just kind of dry so areas are characterized by that somewhat but anyway but the Pergamos in particular um, which would mean a lot of people are caught up in rituals devoted to evil. Um, so you know your work, I know where you live, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days which Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So there's been a martyrdom in the church in Pergamos. Nobody really knows exactly who Antipas was. He's not mentioned besides here, just... It's what's interesting about that, though, which is significant, that um, you don't know anything about this guy. He is a faithful guy in a small persecuted church in the city, but God knows him. I know he died. So this is the encouragement for us in our own struggles to be faithful. Oh, here I am. It's like, no, I know what you're doing. He sees, and because we think he doesn't, or we're insignificant, he got, you know. And, and actually, one of the paradoxes of these letters is the greatest praise is reserved for the poor and insignificant churches. The big happening ones are like, repent. But I have a few things against you. <laughs> you're always in Revelation. I was waiting for the butt. You know, you, you know, yeah. I know. I know your works. I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Uh, and I'll include 15. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine, doctrine of Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Well, Jose, so there's a connection we touched on last week, which is that um, 
the word Balaam, which uh, in origin means to, to sort of rule over the people, Baal, um, is, and, and the word Nicolaitan, uh, the, the word Nico is related to Nike or conquer, and Laetans is like Laos, laity, where Lord laity comes from. So the two words mean essentially the same thing. And John is suddenly connecting the two things here. Um, it, and it's not sure why they go by two different names, but let's trace it in origin. So what do we know about Balaam? I only gave you three chapters on that to read this morning, 22, 23, and 24. But without going through all those chapters of, of Numbers, Numbers 22 tells the story of Balaam. What do we know about the story of Balaam? Who was he? Huh? Well, Balaam was a prophet. Prophet. Yeah. A prophet that God, who, through whom God did speak. With his so, so what, and, and Balak was a king, a pagan king who, um, tried to yeah, tried to hire Balaam to curse Israel because the setting is in the wilderness. Israel's come up out of Egypt, and they're coming through these countries, and and the and the kings who are coming are afraid they're going to conquer us. And we so this king Balak hires the prophet Balaam to stand on a hill and curse Israel because that was that was thought to bring protection. He brings a lot of money. And Balaam then goes, uh, he says, uh, and God, but God does actually speak to Balaam in the story. And, and, and God says to Balaam, don't do it. Don't go with him. And he says, I can't go. And so Balaam goes, he comes back, brings a little bit more money. And Balaam, and, and Balaam says, oh, well, okay, well, should I go? And, and God says, well, go but only say what I say. And then on the way, this is significant to the story, Balaam's on his donkey and God appears in the middle of the path with a sword. And the donkey won't go, but Balaam doesn't see him. And oh, there the donkey sees God, but Balaam doesn't. And the implication of the story is that Balaam was, was inspired by the money to try to really try to go. God said not to go. God says, don't go, you just don't go. You don't go my way, and this this way we do it. Like when we have a commandment, or we know we're not supposed to do something. So, God, can we talk some more about that? Um, you know, did you, did you did, can we parse your no? You know, what is what? And and, and then there's the scary thing is if God's gonna you know you okay if your your heart convinces you to do disobedient things, but there could be consequences to them. So he goes, and in the story, he ends up um, being set up to curse Israel three times. Uh, but each time he goes, God doesn't allow him to do it. And he actually blesses Israel. So Balak ends up being being mad and saying, yeah, yeah, I would give you money, but I'm not going to give it to you now. But the end of the story in, um, in uh, verse... Numbers 2230, no, that's not it. It's at the end of Numbers, um, can't remember the passage, but it tells us that what Balaam ultimately did was to, um, after the blessing incident was over, was to consult with Balak and tell him how to undermine Israel. And he did this by inviting 
Jewish men to the pagan worship in which they slept with the women of Moab, prostitutes. So you hold to the doctrine of Balaam to put a stumbling block means you're compromising and participating in pagan rituals, which because we have to understand something that that uh, this sort of sexual promiscuity and, for, and what, what is called New Testament fornication was a normal part of pagan temple worship, part of the fertility cult that you participated in. And so to, to pretend that you can do this, you can worship God and also do this is, is the doctrine of Balaam. There's a gruesome story, but it's it highlights an Old Testament hero, a guy named uh, Phineas, who in the midst of this going on, he saw Jewish men going with the, with the Moabite women. One went into to the tent with a Moabite woman named Cosby, and uh, Phineas took his spear, went in the tent, and pierced them both through in the act. And the psalm, there's a psalm that says, and Phineas interposed, and the plague ceased, and was counted unto him for righteousness forevermore. God doesn't like that kind of compromise. And um, we should notice something on this, too, in, in Acts chapter um, 11, where they had the great conference. Um, see here. Actually, Acts 15, I think, is where it is. Acts 15. Um, let me get the, let me get the uh, quote for you. Okay, so after, in the early church in Acts chapter 15, when St. Paul had done his Gentile mission, there was a question, do the Gentiles need to be circumcised? And they solved it that they didn't, but they added some other things. Um, and it says, we, we, we therefore sent Judas and Silas, who are also report the same things by word of mouth. This is to the Gentile churches in Asia Minor. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, to Spain, the pagan sacrifice, from blood, as that is the non-kosher way of strangling, and from sexual immorality or fornication. In other words, you're, you're to be free from participation in pagan worship in its entirety. So what those who hold the doctrine of Balaam are not doing that. And um, to transfer that to our time, because we don't have pagan temples, but we do have a general morality that says, oh, well, you know, it's kind of what they're doing and it's what you have to do to get by in the place. And God doesn't like it now any more than he liked it then. It's, it's, it's never been any different what And, and, and it's not just like sex is bad kind of thing. What it is is in the New Testament, the, the marriage is 
the sign of the union of Christ and his church. Everything in this life points to things in the next life. It's a sign of the union of Christ as a church. And therefore, it cannot be a sign if, if it doesn't have that weight. of uh, so, so God has reserved sexuality to the place of complete and total commitment. Just as he himself only becomes close and intimate with those who are close and intimate with him in a covenant relationship. To go off and be intimate with someone for whom you have no responsibility is therefore partaking of this this sort of this unfaithfulness and and to suggest that that you can do that even in our culture as a christian and not a, and not have something it's it's not true so that's the idea here the idea of compromise you can you can you can go along with that and have it be okay we should note here that um, as, a, as a matter of, uh, we're a few minutes over because we started late, so we'll, we'll be, we have a couple more minutes to finish up. Just, um, as a mission, when we talk about in preaching the gospel to our culture, obviously you know the people involved in, in a lot of, of things in the world when we preach the gospel. It's not the church's um, task to go out and tell non-believers that, that they're doing bad, we can present them, once they come to faith, faith then will help them reorient their life. This is for the church. You are part of the church of God in Pergamos and pretending you can, you can still do what, what those who are outside the church do. So this is why, as Hebrews says, judgment begins at the house of God. And part of the, the judgment on the church in this culture is that it hasn't had that, it hasn't been set apart. It hasn't lived by that standard. And that's what we have to kind of renew in our witnesses. If you want to be in that, go be in it. But that's not the people of God. But as Our, our policy towards those who are who are outside, who are unbelieving, ought to be ambassadorial. Come, oh, let's let's teach. It's not you're so bad. And sometimes in the culture, the church turns that around. We're getting moralistic about the people out there and completely ignoring our own hypocrisy. So this is this is this is a message to the church in Pergamos, not to every pagan person. In, you know, God wants those to come, but but once you have a covenant relationship, there's a particular obligation to him to, to follow through on it. So he says in verse 16, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. They'll be judged by his word is what it means. I gave you, a re there's a reference to that in Isaiah where that sword of my mouth comes from in the Old Testament. It's Isaiah 49 too. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, and again, uh, this is the word Nike, conquer is a better word. Um, he who conquers, conquers temptation and, and all the opposition. I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. The hidden manna would be um, in, in, the, in the Ark of the Covenant, the manna was hidden inside the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant. And just as now the, um, the God 
is present in the person of Jesus, sometimes hidden. So this is a reference to the bread of life, who is Christ. And I'll give a, a new, I'll give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except the one who receives it. There's a range of interpretations about the white stone. There is a, um, a reference in the Garden of Eden um, to two stones, uh, onyx and bdellium. And I've, different sources say bdellium is a resin and a white stone, uh, but it is said the onyx stone is the name on which uh, the, the uh, uh, children, the, the names of, of, of the priests were written or the children of Israel written on the priest's breastplate. So it has some relationship to your name being written on a stone and given a stone, which is in the presence of God and your name is there. And a, a new name, um, which no one knows except him who receives it, because in the Bible to name something is to control it. When God names something, you're this, that means he has the authority over it, what he names. Uh, that's what a Christian name is significance. You know, we, we name the person there. This is their Christian name, the, word, the name which are answerable to God. And therefore, if no one knows your name, no one can control you. And this is the real problem with this, this Balaamism and Nicolaitanism is that when you fall prey to this kind of compromise, you're captive to it. And something has overcome you. You're controlled by it. And, and, um, and the promise of Christ here is that when you break free from that, you, you conquer that uh, by faith and by the grace God gives. You get a new name. You can't be controlled. You're free. You're free from being drawn into all these things. And that's, that's sometimes what um, I think that is missed sometimes in discussions of freedom and morality, because people talk about being free to do this. But most people who are engaged in things that really aren't God-honoring aren't really that free. Because if you're not free not to do it, you're not free to do it. You're compelled to do it. And that's that's what we talk about during Lent and fasting. The reason we, we practice the no, so, so we develop the freedom for the yes. Because only, so when God gives us a new name, we're free. We don't have to do something. We think of the compulsions of life. It's a good thing to think about just during the end of Lent. You're like, you, sometimes you feel this, I gotta do this. Ask yourself, why do I have to do that? We develop these compulsions. Why do I have to do that? These little patterns. Why do I have to do that? Am I really free or am I being, and there's, there's a larger spiritually directive conversation about that. So we'll stop there. Pick up the two more churches next week. Good to be with you all. I'll try to put you on the big screen again next week. I failed my technological test, but I'm happy to. So anyway, let us pray. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face to shine upon us. Be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us. Give us peace this day and forevermore. Amen. Yes. Thank you. Um,
So what we're saying is that we're not really saying that that this is um, what John is saying is that the reality of the church has replaced the temple. And John is showing our, 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 our reality as the people of God before God. He's taking the temple images and moving them forward into the new reality, the fulfilled reality of the church. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm following exactly. I, I, the the seven lampstands represent the whole church. There was no temple in Jerusalem. Anymore. Well, there were only in the in the temple. There were only that seven menorah lampstand. That 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 was that. And and so what John is saying is that temple is no longer the temple, but here's the true temple in heaven, and here's how those symbols in the earthly temple are fulfilled now in the heavenly one in the church. Because Revelation is caught up in the whole idea of how the um, how the how the um, the temple is going to be destroyed and, and gone forever, replaced now with the reality of the church, which is everywhere around the world. The seven is, is geographically dispersed. So unlike the old menorah, which was all connected at the lampstand, because it was one, it was it was it was just the fullness of God's people in a place. Now there are seven distinct candlesticks because the church is everywhere. But wherever it is, it's in the presence of God because it exists in Christ. And we come in Christ into the presence of God, sharing his priesthood the way the Old Testament priests went into the Holy of Holies, which no longer is in the earthly temple. This... It, it, yes, it was for the Jewish people. So we would say Judaism, the continuation of Judaism in itself is an error because it has rejected its, the Messiah of Israel, who is Jesus. It doesn't mean we think every Jewish person is horrible or, or even that, that, that they're responsible for the rejection of Jesus in the same way that first century Israel was. 
but to continue to go to a synagogue and pray a liturgy that asks for the Messiah to come when the Messiah has come is, and there's a question as, as whether God will orchestrate such things so that those Jewish people are now outside of the covenant will be brought back in when Jesus comes at the end. St. Paul seems to address this or, or work with this discussion in Romans chapter 10 a little bit. Romans actually chapter 9 to 11, where he talks about, yeah, what's going on because God's people, but, in, in, but, but because of, of, of Jerusalem's rejection of the Messiah, God's covenant people is the church. He has no other covenant people. He has no, there's, there are people who belong, who have not accepted that and, and are still holding to the old covenant, but the old covenant has been super, superseded. It's no longer the way to, so, so that's how they stand. And, and They believe 